this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I want to tell you. Feature creep, colon. Built-in microwave. Semicolon. Space Health Innovation Conference 2019. Ina- inaugural. Inaugural. Oh yeah. I- inaugural. 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 Okay. <laughs> um. Let's do this thing. Yeah. So, uh, what did we do? We we found out about this conference. I found out about this conference when I was attending another conference. The American Society for Bioethics and Humanities annual event in Pittsburgh. And I met some really awesome people while I was there. And um, they connected me with some other awesome people who said, hey, there's this space thing in San Francisco next weekend and you should go to it. Uh, And I decided they were right. And so um, went back to home and talked to Ned and said, hey, there's this thing that we should do. And it's happening in the next couple of days. We should rent a car and drive up to San Francisco and see this thing. And so that's what we did. Yeah. So that's what we did. Um, so we got to San Francisco uh, late Friday night and then we popped up early in the morning and went over to the conference center at the UCSF camp- campus. Um, and this was a, this conference was really well put together, I think, considering um, the, it, you know, it being a first conference, right? I mean, right. Was, you know, it was a well, well, um, well scheduled. It was a really dense schedule, but they seem to keep everything moving pretty quickly. I don't think I had really any complaints around, um, access to any of the speakers or, uh, meeting with any of the vendors or any of the, you know, any of the, well, vendors, they didn't really have vendors. They just had people in the industry. I mean, the, the focus, let's, let's kind of get down to what, what, yeah. what the hell are we talking about? What's the point of this whole thing? So, um, go ahead. Very briefly, the conference was about healthcare and its um, practice and its innovation <clears throat> and the technology associated with it in the context of space and microgravity. Um, and so a lot of things that you need to do for people on Earth, you still need to do for them if they're in outer space, including take care of their health. But there are unique challenges to doing that when you're in a microgravity environment that you don't face on planet Earth. And so you have to develop technology around that and address those concerns before you just start putting people in harm's way. And that's what the essence of the conference is about. And so the the point of it was to bring together people from academia and from the space industry and from um, the, the healthcare or medical industry um, and... Uh, entrepreneurs and people who are seeking funding to do research and, and all of these disparate people who are looking to fund research. Yeah. Um, Yeah. People who are looking to fund research um, and bring them all together for the first time really and organize them into one single group in one big room and talk about what everybody's working on pretty briefly. I mean, this. Yeah. I mean, they kept, they kept a real tight schedule on the speakers, which was actually really, um, it was great. Yeah. It was great because there was a lot of ground to cover and, um, it was, I think their intention was to basically say, Hey, here's where this information is. If you have more questions, here's how you can get a hold of these people. Um, there was opportunity, obviously, at the conference to meet, uh, everyone in person. Um, well, not everybody. I, how many people would you say attended? Like about 300? We maybe? were, yeah, we were like guessing ballparking like 300 or so people. We yeah. might be off by a little bit. 
so yeah, it was a really interesting conference. Um, there were a lot of topics. We were all in the same room together for the first half of the day and then mm-hmm. they had breakout sessions. Um, it was, it was really tight. I mean, we got in there, uh, by eight thirty. they started the first talk. Um, like they were doing the introductions, uh, and then it was just rolling the whole time. I mean, yeah, like the breaks. So they're like, Oh, nine forty to 10 AM, nine forty AM to 10 AM break. So that break really probably started about nine forty five, And then by about nine fifty fifty five, they're already saying, okay, like we're getting ready to start again. Um, and then they went all the way through to lunch where this is my favorite part. So, Lunch is 11.50 to 12 p.m., 11.50 a.m. to 12 p.m., so 10-minute lunch break, which is basically go pick up your lunch and then come back in the auditorium where we will start the um, the next speech. Uh, so that was when John Clark, uh, who was the spaceflight surgeon. Um, yes. And so he gave... Um, he just kind of gave an overview, right? Like he wasn't. Yeah. So, um, kind of set the stage for the second part of the second half of the conference. Yeah. And he had kind of like a, I felt like there was sort of a torch passing sentiment to it. Um, there were, you know, the people who were on the cutting edge of developing space technology and landing people on the moon Mm -hmm. are now looking at the types of they're retiring. They're getting out of the field. Um, and they're looking at the types of work that people are doing in space and it's so much more broad and complicated and there are so many more concerns. It's not a unified effort to buy a group of people all working on the same problem, i.e. get people to the moon and back. Now there's many, many, many things going on. Um, and a lot of the technology that's developed in space has far reaching applications and super beneficial applications on earth. And so as you can imagine, you know, over here's the commercial industry and you've got people like SpaceX planning to go to Mars in a very, very short timeline mm-hmm. from now in, relative to the, the whole of space right. flight. Um, and then you've got people who are <clears throat> working on like the gateway, the gateway foundation is working on building a, a permanent fixture out in space um, where people will live and work. And the idea being that, Space travel is difficult insofar as getting off of the planet and out of the gravity well is very difficult and very energy consumptive um, and takes a lot of time and effort by a lot of people. But once you're out there, getting around and moving around and building things is super easy because you don't have the problems caused by gravity. You have a different set of problems. Right, right. But some things become possible that are not possible when you have to work against gravity all the time. Right, right. And so, um, yeah, they that that lunchtime speaker was really cool because they talked about passing on the torch to the next generation and what people are working on now and why it's important. And, um, there's just, because there are so many things going on, there's a lot of room for lots of different types of people to get involved in lots of different activities that contribute to this whole thing. And that's why Ned and I are interested in it because we both have science backgrounds, but, um, we don't do research and we're not in graduate studies at the moment. And so we're interested in, being involved in supporting in ways that are maybe too, um, um, what am I looking for? Like not frivolous. No. Uh, well, so there's like, you know, sometimes there's low hanging fruit that gets right. left to the way, wayside, right? It's like, Hey, you know, it would be great if this problem was solved, but it's not mission critical. It, right. Um, or, you know, sometimes it is mission critical, but our current solution is good enough and we don't have the funding or wherewithal to explore some of the other options that, 
there might not actually be a huge expense to look at them, but it's more about time or it's more about priority. It's not a high priority, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, like I, I was thinking about one of the problems they were talking about, um, with, uh, just as an example, I can imagine this is, you know, purely speculation or, um, conjecture, conjecture, but, uh, well, no, I was thinking like, um, hypothetical ah, right yeah so uh they were talking about um some of the early missions one of the problems was you know there's so much velcro everywhere to keep things fixed that a lot of the astronauts have a lot of fingertip damage because they're just constantly coming in contact with the, the mm-hmm. rougher side of velcro at some point you know either put, pushing things into pouches pulling thing out of pouches so they're just getting these constant micro abrasions they're getting these like constant like minor wounds on their fingers so that's the kind of the kind of thing where it's like it's not mission critical. Yeah. They're probably going to continue using Velcro for quite a long time. On the other hand, if you could come up with a solution where it's like, Oh, Hey, here's just a slightly better way to do a bag with existing Velcro or something, you know, like yeah. look, if you fold it over this way, like then, an aftermarket improvement kind of, right. Exactly. I like, I, yeah, right I mean, for it, well, there's <laughs> lots of, I mean, there's lots of room. I mean, that, that's just kind of describing the kinds of problems that are not mission critical, but it would potentially like long-term, you know, I mean, it might be important. I mean, you're in space for three years. You want to minimize the amount of, you know, discomfort you have because you know right. even a minor cut with the wrong infection and you know away you go with some miserable time for right. three years because you're stuck or then, you die. Right. or then you die sure. and then they're stuck with your dead body in a capsule with them right exactly until they make it back to the planet yeah. for the uh point of interest for anyone who doesn't know to go on a round trip mission to mars at this point <clears throat> the projection is that it would take three years and if you go to mars or you and you want to come immediately back or if you start going and realize you shouldn't have left in the first place or something happens and you have to scrap the idea of spending actual time on Mars, you still have to go to Mars in order to come back to Earth because you need to go around the far side of Mars and use the um, forces generated by that to slingshot you back to planet Earth. You cannot come back unless you make it there first. And so a lot of the problems have to deal with scales of time and um, they're logistical problems. You have to have enough medicine to last you for this trip, but some most medicines expire after 24 months and a full round trip is going to take 36. And so how do you, how do you handle that? How do you solve for that problem? Um, there's other problems like space and weight constraints. Um, all sorts of things, just myriad things to worry about. And so, um, I think the, the, the nice thing about this conference was that, um, people came with the information about the latest things they were working on. And for the most part, both of us, I feel knew a lot, a fair deal, not a lot, but a fair deal about all of the things that these folks were working on with one notable exception, exception, which just knocked both of our socks off. Oh, you mean the, um, the lettuce. Oh, the le- yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things, um, before we get to lettuce, which right. was a pretty cool thing, um, there was, uh, you know, a lot of these things, it's like, you know, when you look at it, you're like, oh, well, you know, that's what we do on earth. Like, to, you know, there was a one, one, uh, particular company called, um, made in space and their, their whole sort of objective is you know, studying and working on and implementing 3d printing on the ISS. So they currently yeah. have a 3d printer up there They're Uh, they just recently launched a, um, recycling device so that they can reprocess plastics that are already existing on the, um, space station so that they can be turned into filament to drive the, um, 3d printer. Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> and they were involved in the early stages of like all the testing. Cause it, you know, one of the things that I think people forget about is like, 
it's such a critical um, space, even on the ISS, as far as like uh, a really delicate system. ISS is International Space Station. Yeah. So the International uh, International Space Station, you know, as large as it, as it is, and there's quite a lot of activity up there, um, it's still a very delicate system. So anytime anybody proposes some new piece of equipment, um, there's quite a rigorous testing set that goes it has to go through before it's kind of approved for general use up there. Um, and so a lot of that happens on the ground. And then even at that point when it gets up there, so their first version of it was like in this like sealed box that ran in this like very, you know, it's like high paranoia, right? It's like, <laughs> we don't know what's in there. Put it in the box and, right. you know, put lead cladding around it. I mean, it, it's not, it, it, it's well thought out paranoia, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's very <clears throat> considered and they're saying, you know, this is the worst case scenario that we can see. Let's make sure. And so, uh, I believe they made through all that testing and now the 3d printer kind of functions what you would imagine like a 3d printer in someone's home. Like you kind of have it plugged in and you can come up to it and add some programming to it and yeah. get a part out of it. Um, so, I mean, that, that stuff is uh, probably more mundane and I wouldn't say particularly novel or it might be like more well-known to most people. I mean, I think a lot of people typically are aware of 3D printing on some level and have had some access to it or at least interest in looking how it works. Right. Um, so, but then there's kind of these other things. So like we kind of alluded to, um, there's a lot of, since we're kind of really focused on space health in particular, um, or this conference was, and that was what the, the general topic was looking at. Um, there's a lot of difficulty around um, human health in space just by the nature of being in microgravity or the nature of being in um, elevated CO2 levels for long periods of time or the nature of being exposed to higher levels of radiation because you're no longer inside of the uh, magnetosphere of the Earth that protects us from a lot of solar radiation. Right. So um, so it's being up there is kind of terrible for you yeah actually. i mean it's right yeah well i um i thought so there was one speaker who i really really enjoyed listening to um she was uh i believe her name was um uh let me find her here she spoke kind of midday um she was the head of the nasa research um uh, yeah. Oh, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Fogarty, who was the NASA human research program. Um, I really, I, she was, she had a lot to talk about cause she basically is an, an head of the research program. So she mm -hmm. knows about all the programs she did there. And in her own words, she said, you know, it, she's not the one doing the research. She's there helping to support it and make sure that the actual, you know, scientists in particular labs are getting their access to resources and information right. as they need. Um, I I don't want to fully attribute this to her, but I think she was the one who said there's she has a lot of interest in changing the idea of space being bad for you. The thing is that we're yeah. observing is that humans who are going in space or life forms that are in space. I mean, our our life, you know, when we're up there in space, what's happening is we're she said we're observing our adaptation to the new environment, mm -hmm. and so the problem isn't that we change and adapt and become better in space. So. Uh, one of the examples she was saying is the bone density problem of uh, actually being in space. What they've observed over time is there's, cer there's a certain plateau where the bones sort of level off in their loss of density. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like, it's not this like linear decline where if you stay for too long, you'll have no bones at all. Right. It's much, a much more a matter of it. Your body reaches some new baseline where it's like, well, this is our new bone density that we need for this environment. Right. Um, and so what she was saying is that the real issue isn't, 
that those changes happen. The issue is that when you transition from one environment back to another, so like you go up there, you lose the bone density, you're much more better adapted at being in space. Your body physiologically is like, I know how to be up here now. And then you just fire yourself right back down to a high gravity environment and your bones are like, well, hang on a second. Yeah. I got to get some density back in there or I'm going to break. So, um, you know, so it's an interesting, her take on it was, it's not to be viewed specifically as like space is bad for you it's more like you know it's a very different environment and we should understand and expect that our bodies will attempt to adapt to it and you know what's the side effect of that space is terrible for you if you plan to come back to earth again exactly right you're gonna stay up there for the rest of your life it's (laughs) we don't know (laughs) yeah we don't know so far you know we don't actually know how much that affects your um you know your expected lifespan or other health issues right um so yeah, I I think it um I'm just going to read down a couple of the topics that were covered. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, there were some really cool ones. So, uh the one that we just discussed, um NASA's Human Research Program, Research and Innovation for Space Health and Safety. Um this one uh Eric Antonson from NASA's Human Systems Risk Management needs-based implementation of space health innovation. So I found, uh, I saw him speak in the afternoon too at one of the breakouts. Oh yeah. Okay. And the discussion was around, uh, so understand NASA's strategies for optimizing astronaut health, learn how NASA under, uh, establishes risk and countermeasure priorities, hear how promising technologies transition to ops. So, um, his discussion was basically about, uh, how we decide what risks are acceptable when we're shooting people into space. Um, and NASA has been doing this for a, a while mm-hmm. for 50 odd years. Right. And so they have a list of like, absolutely do nots, And here's some really good ideas to do right. And everything in between. And so they have standards, they've created standards for what's acceptable and, um, you can't operate outside of those standards, but people who don't work for NASA don't necessarily have the burden of those standards. And so you can engage in higher risk, higher potential reward, <clears throat> research and innovation and he was sort of talking about that um and then furthermore the how do you take ideas that seem really good and turn them into actionable things um so i thought that one was really cool yeah that one was very cool i mean he there was i think there were a couple of speakers who referenced the concept of nasa being bound by um what you would might call like an an um a progress governor, right? They're, they, they're bound by these things where it's like, as they might say, it's like you see like a NASA prod, you know, a NASA, you know, mission equipment put together and you're looking at it and it's like, this is for 2019. And you're like, that computer is from 1980. Yeah. Um, you know, that's maybe a little bit extreme, but the, but the reason for that is because by the time, they got to this, this mission was planned 10 years ago. And at that time they had certain, they had 10 year ago equipment available right. and they were testing it. And by the time it met all the standards and approvals, they know it's approved for this mission. Right. And they don't know if you taking up the very latest iPhone 11, how it's going to behave and be, if it's going to be appropriate in the context of all the other systems that they have, that they have to keep working together in concert right. to create, you know, success in the mission. So, um, their particular approach to that is something that, you know, they learned, you know, they've learned and implemented and refined and that's, and this is where we find them at this point. Um, and they were talking about that and he was saying, like you said, you know, if you're 
in the private sector, you may not be bound by those particular governors for good and bad. You know, right. you know they have they have value in understanding them, but um, NASA is also beholden to um, you know public funding and all of that, and so they're they're much more of a political. Their actions are much more politically swayed, right? You yes. Know, a private sector. <clears throat> They can suffer some difficult PR, but they're not necessarily going to suffer the same financial damages that NASA might, you know, lose all funding or be direct. Like the worst part is like they can just be directed in a different direction. And there's nothing right. they can do about it. Um, so, uh, or, you know, I mean, that is what it is. It's a, it's a publicly sort of pushed, mm-hmm. pushed around entity. Um, okay. So uh, I, I think one thing that kind of brings up though, you were talking about like greater risk, greater reward. Yeah. Um, that's something that we didn't get a lot of opportunity to discuss there. But, you know, as an ethicist, that's something that is of particular interest to you, I would imagine, and something that we might want to earmark for future discussion or future um, yeah. episode. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, there was also a discussion of evidence-based health in space. And so this kind of draws on, like, the concept of big data. Yeah. Um, and gathering lots and lots and lots and lots of data on lots and lots of metrics over... Uh, a long enough time period that you can see changes and um, predict trends and sort of extrapolate things and therefore know where to push the edges of things, like where it's likely to have a good effect, where you're likely to get a high return out of it and predictability and things like that. So um, things like computational modeling, um, physical simulations, um, like uh, these sorts of things, uh, newer technologies can be applied to old problems mm-hmm. to help solve them better. Right. Right. Um, and I thought that was really great because I, I love statistics and I'm kind of a data geek. Um, and the ethics of data use is something I'm very interested in as well. Um, there was a couple of sessions that we attended in the afternoon. Um, that I thought were really cool. The microgravity physiologic adaptations, alterations in function and countermeasures. Um, so that, that was, that talked about what we were talking about earlier, how your body changes in space and adapts to living up there. Um, I I already kind of mentioned the three dimensional or the 3d in space. Um, uh, the, the current sort of projects that are around that, um, with the, uh, made in space company, currently having a three dimension or three much a 3d three-dimensional printer a 3d printer on the space station currently um and then having recently um launched and set up the um uh the recycling unit so yeah that's their kind of current state there and the 3d that the 3d talk talked a little bit about um you know they they kind of hype up the advantages of it i think most people understand the advantages of um 3d printing as far as like kind of <clears> having <throat> having novel shapes available on demand yeah um you know like specific tools or specific parts that you might need for like a quick fix or something that you're trying to do so yeah um yeah so the and i think the thing they wanted to stress and i think most people probably understand this but if you haven't thought about it in this way they're they like to think of the 3d printer as a sort of you know an early version of Star Trek transporter, right? You don't have to launch things to the, you know, to the space station anymore. Right. We can beam data up at the speed of light, which is literally just the configuration of that particular object. And now it can be printed out on the printer and then, you know, 
an hour later, an astronaut can come over and retrieve whatever object that was designed by a design team on the ground and tested right. and robustly. And they don't, you know, they may not have the time to do that or the resources, and then they can get the final product on the space station ready to go. You know, whether it's you know yep. a particular kind of wrench or a particular kind of whatever. So, yeah. um, you know, obviously, right now within the limits of what three D printing can do, and and I I think. Um, the impression I got again is like that 3d printer is probably not on the cutting edge of 3d printing anymore because, but that, you know, at the time that it went right. up there, um, it was probably the best they could get away with and, you know, leaps and bounds every, every day. Right. Really so at any of, given time you say, what's the best we can get right now today? And sure. somebody presents something, you say, okay, hold that thought. We're going to make sure it passes all of the right, right. benchmarks and yeah. risk assessments and all of the things. Yeah. And so you kind of put that on hold while technology progresses right. into the future. And you have to double check that the last best thing you had Mm -hmm. is going to work. Right. So that's how that, that's how that happens. It's not just a matter of like swapping out a printer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, that was the three dimensional or the 3d printing, um, the 3d in space, they called it 3d plus technologies. Um, so at this point we'd seen, they had, this conference was really well organized. Like we're all in the main conference hall or in the main auditorium had the, you know, the main speakers got introductions to everything. Um, then, uh, after lunch, there was a brief talk from, um, who we just mentioned, uh, was it John Clark? And then, um, and then we had, after that, there was the, uh, also a follow-up by Stephen Stephen Robinson, who was also retired now. So yeah. And then at that point, then we did the breakout sessions where we had a like a, a brief minute to kind of go scatter to some adjacent rooms where yeah. some other talks were happening. By this time in the afternoon, I had actually been using my brain to think so much that right. I yeah. was most of my thought energy right. was going toward considering what they were saying, making thoughtful notes about it, trying to figure out where we could do more research to see if all of the low hanging fruit could be something that we could yeah. contribute to yeah. solving. I, I mean, definitely I um, was in the same boat. My notes changed rapidly. Like the early morning session are littered with side thoughts, yep. food, like notes to myself about who I want to contact. Um, by the time I got into the afternoon, a lot of times it's literally just the speaker I saw and the main subject and possibly a note of something of interest. Yeah. So um, I, I, I will say this, the, um, I managed to take good notes the whole way through, but I was, I had to, this was hard work because we were in a room full of people who are like way beyond the type of, Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, mean, the T cell discussion was, there were three different researchers talking about the same subject, sharing their particular contributions to the topic and cramming through what I would call like a poster session for a really specific, like, you know, biochemistry health issue that, that's now having to be condensed and crammed into right. to three 10 minute sessions in the half hour period they had. Yeah. And they um, were like doing the hand slap as they passed each other on stage. Yes, like there yeah. was no waiting for the next person to get up on the stage. It was right. like people were in a relay race basically yeah, to get to the yeah. end of the day. It was super impressive. It, um, it was. <laughs> and I would say like, um, I hope they don't change that too much because knowing that now, if you know, when I go back next year, you'll be prepared. I'll be better prepared. It's just understanding that's what you're getting yourself into. Right. Because the amount of inf- information, it was really great. Like we covered so much ground over that short period of time. Yes. And I was not, I was exhausted by the end of the day, but I was not upset or like mad that I, you know, I wasn't like, oh, no, man. I feel like we like, 
when you break the tape when you cross the finish line like yeah. holy shit we did it yeah yeah <laughs> right and it, it just it like the value was really high and i felt like no individual really had their time wasted i hope no yeah. one felt that way um people seem pretty positive there so yeah um the i did want to share some notes that i took about something that i find personally fascinating because uh i don't know if it's because like people in our family were worked in the healthcare field worked in medicine mm-hmm. um but like not horror movie blood and gore yeah but like oh you need field surgery blood and gore like i'll help you out with that sure doesn't bother me at all i think it's fascinating so there was a an uh an australian doctor who um runs a program that trains people for nine month stretches on antarctica to be prepared to endure the types of stressors that you might experience in space so extreme isolation um yeah oh so he was um that was uh he spoke in the afternoon too i think he spoke in the morning right when we were both in the same room together, we were definitely in the same room together okay um let me find him really quick here. He was, uh, Jeff oh. Ayton. He, I think so. Jeff Ayton. He's the director of yes. C-A-R-M-M. Yeah. yeah. Jeff Ayton was the Australian Ar- Antarctic division. So he, so Jeff Ayton was actually, he's a, uh, he's from the UK, but oh. he's working in he. So his accent, he had a British accent and he's but in a little Tasmania. Bit, yeah. Yes. He had a little bit of an Australian inflection to it yes. because he probably spent so much time around the Australians. Cause I think he was basically, he's most of his time is down there in the, um, the, uh, so they have this, it just says Antarctic Australia or the Australian Antarctic division, but basically they manage these, um, stations in antarctica right and three of them three of them and they're very remote and isolated like nine months out of the year there is no possibility of getting in or out of these stations mm-hmm. once they're once you're at the station and your window of coming and going is over like in the summer and now it's winter time you you are stuck there that's where you are going to be for the next nine months for better or for worse alive or dead alive or dead yeah you, you know you'll be there um I, I, I wrote a note to myself when he was giving his presentation, um, the, the sort of like tagline, yeah. if you will deal with it, <laughs> yeah, deal, with it. <laughs> deal with it. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really cool because they talked about doing self-surgery, yep. which I, I hope I'm never in the position to have to do that, but I think I'd be highly successful at that, to be honest with you. I feel like there's a very high level of motivation around being successful at that if you're giving yourself a self-surgery. It's not like you're going to go into it thinking, eh, we'll see how it goes. Right. I mean, you might have to think that thought because otherwise you'll never get yourself to start in the first place, but... um, Yeah. yeah, and I uh, here's a little note that I also have. There's one single healthcare provider at each of the three stations in Antarctica. Yes. So there's one person, and that that doctor is actually a, just a general practitioner, somebody right. who can do lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not you know, we're not asking for the ninety nine point ninth percentile in like yeah, like cardiothoracic surgery. Right. Or we're talking about someone who can do just about anything enough to keep you alive. Yeah, they were um he talked to he really skimmed brief, briefly but he did show the um 
the training schedule that he had for those doctors. So they would basically take these sort of general physicians. Right. Um, like and, he described them as country doctors. Yeah, they're country doctors. It's like they're a bit, they're a bit of, they can do a bit of everything. And so they get training in all of those areas. It's not like, you know, they're sort of self-directed to that. He ha- They have a training program where they get... Um, they get a lot of training in those different areas. Yeah. Um, like a wide, you know, it's a wider, broader, more generalized um, training <clears throat> in, in, yeah. In healthcare. Right. Um, so just in case it's not obvious, the, um, you know, the stations are germane to uh, space, you know, space travel by the understanding of, even though they're here on earth in our atmosphere with our level of gravity, they are these remote locations where, you don't have access to um, the greater access of like human health right. resources or just general resources in general that you're available to on this planet. Exactly. So, um, so that's where they're, uh, they're definitely like a very interesting study. They have a ton of data from it. Um, one of the things he mentioned, but glossed over, so I don't know the results of this or where it was going, but he was mentioning that there's, um, they're looking, they're trying to understand how um, individuals might get a cold in the winter, even though there's no new, um, new in- individuals entering into oh, the location. So right. like, you know, people show up or they've been in the station for their, they're there. Um, they're going to be there for nine months. Why is it that all of a sudden around winter in a predictable time frame? Right. He was saying in a predictable time frame. why is it now people start getting cold when no new, you know, it, it's pretty isolated out there. There's not really any reason to expect that some viral load came in from an external source. Like, right. a, you know, some new person showed up off the planes or off the boats or whatever. There's, there's none of that. No yeah. new shipping shipments of food resources have been there the whole time, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting data there. Um, he, he had a really dense talk and I think it was, um, mm-hmm. it, I think he didn't realize like how little time he was going to get to cover. I mean, he had, he did an amazing job. Yes. I think he packed in a lot. Um, and I, as they all did, I don't have any really, you know, anyone I thought, Oh man, yeah. well that guy didn't do his homework. Right. <laughs> I mean, no way. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about really like a lot of this stuff is presentations of, um, research of, of massive teams. There's no one individual who could have not done his homework. It's, it's yeah. all or hurt. Well, let's be honest. Only men don't do homework. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't know. No one wants to do homework, so let's just leave it at that. Um, um, one thing that they did point out was that they're having a remote medicine conference in Hobart, Australia, the 6th through 8th of August 2020. Oh, let's just go to that. Which is birthday. maybe the only reason I would go to a continent with those spiders. Um, so, uh, yeah, that Which, was... Are you talking about funnel web spiders? I All of them. Just all, all of the, the things with eight legs that live in Australia can go to hell. Gotcha. Um, there, um, there's some really interesting, um, things that Mike Barrett, uh, the astronaut discussed, um, when he gave his presentation, the, the one that the general concept that I'm really interested in is going back and looking at all of the things people didn't think of when they first designed the stuff. Yes. Right. Yeah. And this is something that's of particular interest to me because I'm the type of person who tends to think of a lot of these things ahead of time. And mm-hmm. so when other people don't, mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised by that. Right. Like, right. what do you mean you didn't think of X while you were making this thing that was designed to do X? Yeah. So, um, that uh, like that type of thing, like looking mm-hmm. back at something that a ton of time and energy and research and money were already put into that yeah. nobody's going to spend money and time and research 
fixing now that it's been up there. Right. That kind of stuff is the type of stuff I think that we could be really good at. Right. But just looking at and getting, you know, just from a, right. So that had led me to, um, a a kind of practical idea I had had around that is, um, creating, I'm going to, I've already kind of refined it in my head since I last told Mm -hmm. you about it, but basically creating a, a poster that lists all of the, um, the current inventory or at least the waste inventory right. on the ISS. Yep. Um, so if you have like a lot of times like these problems, it, it's a matter of like looking at it and understanding, you know, we're not up there. So obviously mm-hmm. like the very best people to kind of at least present what issues are happening are the right. people who are there having the issues. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, you know, outside of the problem domain, you know, the ISS is, is, first and foremost like a scientific endeavor right like it is a platform for understanding and doing research um in space and uh i it occurred to me you know there's a lot of resource up there that might be wasted right like you know there's a lot of waste there's a lot of things that they don't you know necessarily have any ability to manage so if we had those lists up on the wall you just Mm kind of have it in the back of your mind and you're going along and you're thinking hey wouldn't it be really interesting to do this kind of study look there's already some of that material up there that we would need that means that you know we could you know make a proposal for some kind of experiment or some kind of you know procedure to be followed to you know see what kind of data we get from it um so i'd actually thought to kind of extend out that idea would be to create a series of posters around the problems and Mm -hmm. um you know, that currently exist or just kind of get, get these like collated data sets together and then, and then have these posters available. And these are the kinds of things that just everyone should have. Yeah. That, that is interested. Yeah. Cause you have that up on the wall and you're like, Hey, this is a very current data set and this is a current problem that has, you know, an unsatisfactory solution or it, it, you know, even problems with satisfactory solutions, it doesn't mean that can't be improved on beyond that. You know, satisfactory solutions in space is a little bit, especially like short-term space travel is a lot different. That was one of the things, um, was it in that talk? He was talking about how, um, what is a perfectly acceptable solution for a three day trip is not an acceptable solution where you're stuck in that capsule for For three three years. years. Um, I don't remember if it was this talk or one of the other ones, but I think it was a reoccurring theme in general anyway. Yes. Um, Yeah. You, so any problem that you seek to solve, like there's, you're bounded by constraints, right? Right. For instance, um, if you, like we were saying, if you want to go to the international space station and back, you're talking about a trip that doesn't necessarily take very long. Right. Um, like anywhere from hours. hours. Yeah. You're up there in, in, in like five hours or something. Yeah. Or it's hours. pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, just like for some times you travel, you can take just a carry on and get away with it. And that's fine because you don't need enough stuff for six weeks, right. but a carry on is not going to help you very much or in totality if you need to relocate somewhere and that's all you're taking with you. Right. And then once you get there, you can't get anything else. Right. Yeah. You can only take what you brought. So, um, the, if you change some aspect of a problem, mm-hmm. like how much time the problem needs to be solved for or other metrics like that, you end up with a, a very different set of solutions. Mm-hmm. And, um, sometimes they carry over and sometimes they don't. Right. Um, and that, that kind of leads to the, the question that Mike Barrett sort of posed in his session was what are people not seeing? Like things have been the way that they are in space for 55 years, right. unless somebody took 
a reasonable step to change something. And the things that get noticed or supplied for use um, or developed to serve a purpose are usually, at least at the outset, the focus is on stuff that carries risk. Mm -hmm. So we're not really concerned about creature comforts. We're concerned about not killing you. And so as long as we can meet the threshold for like, yep, this is safe enough to keep you alive. It may be uncomfortable, but we'll solve that problem later. Right. The we'll solve that problem later stuff is what I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, So if it's not risk based, um, if it's not a known risk, then people very likely haven't been paying too much attention to it, whatever it is so far. Yeah. And, and I think there is some, um, there's some crossover in the sense that even at creature comforts, when you, um, when you extend out to three years, that does become a problem because there is the issue of like psychological discomfort and what that leads. Because a lot of these things, the way that they, um, the way they evaluate like state of mind, right? It's like they, they've been running some experiments where uh, astronauts that are returning from the ISS, the International Space Station, um, as soon as they land, they're given a set of tasks to do to measure their ability to, you know, what is their level of functional, you know, ability? Can they plug into power cords? Because a lot of these are problems, you know, you sit in a space capsule all the way to Mars, so you're there for a year in space, at you know potentially microgravity or zero gravity roughly um then you land on a planet and it's the same experience as coming down from iss except there's no one there to pick you up and dust you off and stick you in a nice warm hot tub and feed you tea you have to now land on the ground and then you have to get out and go out and plug in shit into stuff that's already on the ground because a lot of a lot of the mission um ideas seem to revolve around preloading the landing site with equipment. Yeah. So um, stuff is waiting. Yeah. Stuff is waiting there. there. And so then getting the astronauts there is just a matter of having a, an appropriate life support system to convey them to the, the location. Right. Um, but again, when they land, they're not going to land. Like, it's not like you're going to park a car in a garage. They're probably going to land, you know, hundreds of meters away from the other equipment at minimum to maintain because you want to, you don't want to show up and then land on top of all your food and burn it up. Right. You want to like, you know, show up and be well assured that even if there's some, you know, event that causes you to have to shift where you're going to land or do something like that, right. you're still not in the realm of like destroying your equipment, which means that you land and now you need to get yourself over to the other equipment and get that stuff hooked up and turned on or, you know, whatever is appropriate. Yeah. Um, so these problems are like, uh, it, one of the things, I mean, just to kind of tangential a little bit, well, it's related. Um, a lot of these are, a lot of the issues are how do we even create analogs of the environment we're going to potentially experience? Yeah. How do we create um, a test bed where we can try these things out? We, we're not on Mars. It's a three year, you know, it's a three year trip. We can't, you know, we can't simulate the level of gravity on Mars very easily because no. it's lower than Earth. You know, moon, moon and ISS is where you can start to do that. But Again, the issue is how do you create these analogs to do it? And so one of those things is like, well, we have astronauts coming out of space who've been up there for, you know, nine months. Um, They come down, they get tests and stuff, and we do collect a lot of human health data about that portion of it. But again, we don't know, you know, until they get there. Um, But speaking of like changing the parameters again, like the drugs, we were talking about pharmaceuticals since we're bringing it back to space health. um, 
or that's kind of the focus of it. Uh, pharmaceuticals are a big part of, you know, human health, um, whether it's just painkillers or in this case, um, like bone growth hormones and things like mm-hmm. that to help regulate bone density. Um, so one of the problems, as you mentioned, is a lot of these drugs, you know, their shelf life is maybe 24 months in a good environment Yeah, in space where there's ele- elevated levels of radiation. Um, drugs degrade even faster because, you know, radiation is constantly attra- attacking molecules and breaking bonds. Yeah. Um, so one of the issues is, you know, we can't, there's some drugs that we can send them on the ship with them, you know, in the capsule mm-hmm. and they're, they're probably going to be useless by the time they might actually need them. Right. Um, so the question becomes, how do you allow, how do you create a way for them to create those pharmaceuticals when they land? Mm-hmm. You know, when they get there, they might need some kind of like, um, you know, specialty drug for a particular surgery because there was some unexpected emergency or something. Yeah. Um, so that one of the talks I looked at, which was really, really fascinating, um, was, uh, it was called, um, it's on the other page. Here we go. Uh, it was synthetic biology mm-hmm. and, um, there was a, a doctor, uh, Salman Nandi at UC Davis and his research was really fascinating. He was using um, genetic engineering to create plants that could be, um, that can express pharmaceutical grade uh, molecules in their, um, as they grow. And so he was using lettuce as a particular carrier because it grows really quickly. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately he, he had to gloss over a lot of the details, but essentially what's happening is they're basically say, what you would do is you would send these lettuce seeds to, you know, with the astronauts. And then there's a procedure that you can do where you can inject or you can splice in uh, particular genes into the seeds um, before they grow to have them have a particular gene that then generates a particular amount of a particular pharmaceutical. And so the idea is like if you were flying out there and then you needed, I think it was like pH plus, was it, it was like PFH or there's some some growth factor that's used for bone density, um, mm-hmm. whatever that drug was, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but that was one of the ones they were studying. And he was saying what they can do is they can put that into the, um, genome of the, the lettuce, grow the lettuce and, um, get, uh, therapeutic dose levels within one or two leaves. So you really don't have to grow a lot of the lettuce either. Right. You're growing, you know, you grow one or two lettuce plants and you have your, you know, your initial doses of this drug available in the leaf. Mm-hmm. So then the problem is some drugs are by bio, their bioavailability might be through ingestion. So you could just eat the leaves directly. So if it were like say Tylenol or aspirin, you could eat the leaves directly and then get the therapeutic benefits of that without having to purify. And you would also get the minor amount of calorie content and whatever else came along with the lettuce. Right. But, um, but the problem becomes when you have some kinds of drugs where they either need to be administered intravenously or otherwise need to be purified. Um, traditional purification methods require a fairly complicated lab setup depending on the drug and the kinds of purification methods that have to happen. So that is where their research is pushing right now. And they had some really interesting um, approaches to it that uh, they're not beyond anyone's understanding obviously like I, they're just we didn't get the details on them but my understanding is they were using um viruses bound to uh nanoparticles in order to um the virus is having like an affinity for a particular compound and so then they would 
those, you know, they would kind of filter through the uh, nanoparticles mm-hmm. and, you know, they, you basically, you take your lettuce, you stick it in a blender, you add this stuff. And then, um, there's a way to extract out the, these nanoparticles or the virus bound nanoparticles. And then, then there's a way to stimulate them to release the compound in a separate environment. And so, um, the upshot of that is it was this idea of giving, um, having a, a more or a simplified purification step process yeah. where, you know, it's not as complicated chemistry for an astronaut to perform. You don't need as heavy equipment. Um, so those are the, but that was just really fascinating to me that it's like, Oh, well, the pharmaceutical, you know, you're going to bring a whole pharmaceutical lab with you. And it basically consists of growing lettuce or some other similar plant, um, you right. know, and doing some very minor, um, adjustments that the thing that he was talking about, that's interesting, like, the thing that he thought was really fascinating about that or why he thought it was a really a great method of doing it is that if you gave them, um, say if you gave them like a oligonucleotide synthesizer, so you have one, not too complex piece of equipment. You can, you can then basically print specific DNA chains. And so then they get there and then on earth they're like, Hey, there's this new drug that we've, you know, tested and we're ready to try out. And here's the DNA sequence you need in order for, to get your plants to express it. So it's kind of a, it's like a pharmaceutical printer in a way. Right. Yeah. And so they don't have to get to Mars, have all of that equipment already on hand. They, they can just get to Mars and have the ability to create some of these drugs and get give them a wider range and then also give them the ability to get them at the right potency where they're not degraded or completely expired at that point. So, yeah. And like the, that, so there's in, like you said, in essence, there's a pharmaceutical printer. There's the 3d printer that does plastics. Right. They, that same group also developed one that does metals. Mm-hmm. They're working on, and several other groups are working on 3d printers that print biological material. Mm-hmm. And this is of great interest to me personally um not for any specific reason i'm just kind of obsessed with this idea i just i love biology right um and uh um medical ethics is something i'm really interested in um and that often deals with issues of scarcity and who deserves to get what kind of care and things like that and so um in light of many of these technologies that seem otherworldly and very futuristic and are developed in space, they have applications on the planet like 3D printers that print biological material. Um, for instance, there's a, an experiment going on right now where they're working on printing cardiac tissue mm-hmm. that they will then use to patch onto the heart muscles of living organisms on planet Earth to right. repair heart damage and things like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you've got uh, 3D printers that do plastic metal Organs, essentially, which is where that's aiming, is organ replacement. Um, And uh, pharmaceuticals. Not disposable thumbs. Not disposable thumbs. Yet. Not yet. That's a marketing problem. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, just like there's all these things that are going to be necessary in the context of just living and surviving in space, but that are going to make life on the planet potentially way better if we're if we apply these things to people's lives in a responsible way. And that's where, that's where my concern mostly lies. Sure. Is making sure that the distribution or access or who deserves what Mm. is fair to the people who end up getting it. Right. Right. Or not getting it. (laughs) Well, then it wouldn't be fair. Um, 
so yeah, that, uh, what I love most about all of this stuff is that it combines so many of the things that I'm interested in yeah. and all of the, all of the things that have led to me being 40 years old and having great indecision about where to put my efforts and energies in my life yeah. have led me to being interested in and informed about a lot of stuff yeah. and my actual educational background facilitates me understanding and comprehending and thinking about these things, but not necessarily doing the high end work. Right. Right. Um, and so I think like, I think, uh, most people don't know about this stuff. They, so much of it is so academic that you need to understand where to look for it and how, and have a background to, to contemplate it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and be knowledgeable about it. But, uh, I kind of see our role a little bit too, is maybe, sorting through these things, understanding the concepts and then repackaging the information to share with people so that people are aware of what's going on in a broad sense. Because if you don't know about something, right. you can't possibly control how it affects you. You may not be able to control it anyway, but yeah. uh, you information knowledge is key, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it's, yeah, I, it's a tough line. I mean, at some point, you know, that's one of the, the the fundamental issues of big data, right? It's that how do you, you know, you have so much data now that it's, it, how do you like conceptualize it in mm -hmm. a way that actually can make it useful? Like, you know, you have to, yeah. you know, at some point, I, I, this is a little tangent, tangential, but I mean, we live in an age where knowledge, knowledge is available. Now the issue is how do we apply it? You know, how do we navigate through the sea of knowledge and validate, yeah. you know, what is valid knowledge versus what's invalid knowledge? You know, what is, yeah. what is germane to my problem? What is not? Um, but I do get your point. And I, I think in this case, like we're looking, um, you know, we're coming at this problem where it's like our knowledge of the domain, the problem domain is fairly, um, limited at the moment. You know, right. there's obviously going to this, uh, conference both opened up our view of everything massively, but mm -hmm. also showed how little we, we were aware of until this point, which means yeah. there's probably a lot more to be aware of. Um, as you said earlier, I mean, it's certainly, um, encouraging to go and talk to all of these people and realize you're like, Nope, I'm actually qualified to understand this information. Yeah. And discuss. Qualified kind of is a weird implication. I, I, I'm, I, I have the, I have the background, I have the knowledge, like, educated. appropriately educated, yes. um, to be able to tackle these problems. And, um, and the fun thing about that too is, uh, I think most people would be, um, it's not a far stretch from say, you know, like ignorance of, um, ignorance of it, not in a derogatory way, just yeah. as like unknowing mm -hmm. and not, not having the education around that to doing a cursory, like you could go to some, I think, anyone could go to this take away a lot and then know what they might want to go learn about before they're you know yeah um yeah it's a anyway that's a whole other <clears throat> issue but um there was uh there was a panel at 3 p.m that discussed insight to action Do oh you remember I, this one uh or was maybe this in one of my breakouts no i think at three uh i had come back at that point um they were talking about how space is a highly autonomous environment and how you have to edit stuff on the fly and make mm -hmm. new things and solve problems that you couldn't have possibly anticipated till you got there. Um, 
they were talking about how AI and intelligent systems can improve things like history, sensors, data, information, knowledge, models. That was, yeah, that was a breakout session. Okay. Prognostics. That's um, cool. Decisions, planning, procedures, training, and execution. Mm-hmm. But in order to actually take the information from looking at patterns over time and big data machine learning and turn it into something that actually happens. You need people to do that. And so humans remain adaptive problem solvers Mm -hmm. and we haven't got another way to do that yet. Right. That we need people's brains to do adaptive problem solving, which means solving problems that were unanticipated as they arise. Right. Which obviously a pre-programmed machine or AI cannot do by definition. So, the types of problems that people are necessary to solve are problems of intelligence, adaptation, flexibility, creativity, communication, mm. trust, stability, resilience, teaming, teaming ability, memory, cultural sensitivity, um, the evolution of learning and compartmentalization. And, um, I've, I, I, I've, always been kind of like intuitively aware of that distinction but Uh when it was listed out like this i thought it was really helpful yeah um they talked about trust being the ability to understand what humans need and then meet those needs with technology right and in order to have trust in technology it actually has to do with high predictability and repeatability, what it says it's going to do. Right. Right. Um, in the case of space, it's a hundred percent of the time. Right. It can't right, fail. Right. Um, and that's why things like that are very risky are the things that are handled first. Right. Um, you, people have to understand intelligent systems to use them without backfiring. And you have to take early action versus reactive action. And right. early action is the, that that's my jam. Like mm. thinking about problems before you try to solve them, like, or as you're right. solving them and anticipating what effects your solutions will have and making yeah. sure that the right people are involved while you're doing the thinking, you're not omitting everyone or anyone or leaving anybody out. Um, it's, uh, the note I have here says, um, in the in a in an optimized state, people are going to be able to handle surprises, anticipate, and understand the supportive systems that they have at their disposal. Right, right. So um, uh, yeah, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm actually I'm kind of bummed I missed that one, but I'm glad you you saw it because I that's something I um have often found very fascinating. Is oftentimes um like in software development and design, you you have these issues of um the user interface, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you uh, design an interface that exposes all of the functionality of the program in a way that um, uh, optimizes the human user interaction, right. right? Or the yeah, the user, the human and the machine interaction in a way that's like that's that's immediately available to you. Those buttons are there, and you know you push them in ways that make sense to you know <clears throat> to your understanding of how what what you're looking to get out of that particular yeah. interaction. So. Um, you know, and we're plagued with this, like, you know, the whole concept of UX, like the user experience and all of this, which is just, you know, entirely weighed down by a marketing issue, right? Because it's, you Mm -hmm. know, their drive is to make money. And so their drive is to create user experiences that appeal to people to get eyeballs on a screen has nothing to do with, they're not interested in whether you get what you want out of the program. Mm -hmm. They're interested in you spending as much time as possible viewing ads or, you know, whatever their, whatever their need is for your eyeballs on the, you know, there's a secondary, 
um, it's like a subversive like motivation, right? right? Like they're interested in generating money and con, you know, mm-hmm. through their application, which is understandable. It's not, right. it's not a hidden agenda, but it is their current motivation motivation. So a lot of the UX or the user interfaces are designed around that. Yeah. They're designed around driving you to the thing that maximizes their profits. Right. I mean, you look at like Netflix and you know, all these other streaming services, like when they first started, they were one way. And now it's like people just complain every year that a new version rolls out. Yeah. They're like, oh, I hate the new interface. Of course you do, because the new interface is designed to even more limit your ability to make choices in the direction you want to go and to maximize you going in the direction they want you to go. To spend what, money. Yeah, to spend money. So, right. Um, and this is like, this is something that I think uh, the nuance of this gets overlooked because mm-hmm. um, it's really easy to be like, capitalism bad. Right. And that's not really... Um, that's it, not really what we're talking about. No, like I'm just talking about how... Um, I, I, yeah, so I should kind of wrap up my my thought about that. It's like the thing that I'm interested in is, um, you know, creating a really good design, like an interface design, is um, is super interesting and yeah. a very fascinating problem. And it's something that, in the right, you know, when it's done well, works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, pens are kind of a perfect example. It's like you look at. Like we were looking at those pens. Um, they had these pens, you know, lots of complimentary pens when you go to a conference. Right. You know, everybody's got their brand. Like they put their logo on there and then they got a pen. Mm-hmm. And all of these pens probably come out of China and someone just picks them off a list of possible like promotional pens. And th- this pen that I was looking at was like crazy. It had so many features that were kind of, you know, it has the um, the stylus rubber tip so that you can right. use it on a screen. Um, it's got... It's a clicky pen. Um, it's got the clip and then even just the manufacturer of it, there were like four or five different separate pieces of plastic, which means that, um, that pen has to be assembled. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have to be different molds. Um, the, the, and then the overall experience of it was horrible. It wasn't very good at being a stylus because mm-hmm. the rubber right. was, you know, like inadequately large in the particular area. And so it wasn't very good at doing that. And it wasn't very good at being a pen because they put the rubber around the pen tip so that when you clicked it, the pen poked out through the rubber. Like there was a hole in the rubber, like mm-hmm. it didn't damage it, but it poked out. Yeah. So you couldn't actually see the pen tip when you were writing. Oh, that's super annoying. Uh, right. And so it, it was just, and then that whole assembly was a whole separate piece of a, like, you know, there were two, it, there were at least two pieces just to do the tip that screwed on to another tip that was used to hold the tip of the pen inside that, you know, it's just mm-hmm. craziness. So, um, it's and and so the user experience of that or the user interface is one that it's like it's not it it's good in the sense that i immediately knew what it, how to use it yeah but then when you actually go to use it all of those things have gotten in the way of the function of the actual tool hmm. um mm-hmm. and so that's where you know it, the user interface is not just a matter of like it, it's there's so many levels of of issues that come along with it but, right um and interesting problems to solve so um yeah Anyway, um, you know, and that's actually, so th- there's, that's one more thing we could add into that list of like problems to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'd be great to get a list of like, what are all the, you know, the common interfaces that exist on the ISS currently, Right. you know, just to be looking at it and thinking about it and be like, well, why is that big button right there? Does that cause any problems? Like, is it not causing problems? Yeah. Is it solving a problem? And not, not like with the idea that like, I'm going to solve something that NASA overlooked or that, you know, right. it's more just like these are like highly thought about problems. Having them available in front of you can change the way you think about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You can look at it and be like, Oh, that's actually interesting. They, they opted to do this. 
here. Right. For and, a really particular reason. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I really, I, to that point, like, uh, I have a note here that says, do your do research design for humans. Mm-hmm. Like, I think my frustration with design yeah. in general, right. which is something that this podcast is all about. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. My problem with design in general is that I look at things that are designed and for me, something that's designed poorly is not necessarily something that's not made for me, right? but that's just for all intents and purposes, not designed for anybody. Right. Like right. who yeah. made this and who did they make it for? Right. Like yeah. what problem was this supposed to solve? Yeah. Um, so this is a uh, space design space yeah. designing stuff for space yeah. is really interesting to me. Um, maybe because if you design it poorly, the ramifications of that are felt immediately and very critically and critically. Right. right. Um, uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I think that's very cool. Um, I was just going to say, uh, we, so we've, we're hitting an hour and 10 minutes just to give you an idea of where we're at time wise. So should we talk about Adam Gazali's neurological research? That's the last session of the yeah, day. Yeah, Let's definitely do that. Okay. Um, Pause it really quick. So I'm going to get glass, absolutely. glass of water. Go. So the last session of the conference was a presentation by Adam Gazali, who's a neuroscientist, I think. Yes. Um, he works at UCSD. Um, no, UCSF. UCSF. Sorry, I keep saying yeah. D because because we're in the D. Yeah, we're in the D. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the Diego. We're in the Diego. Down, down here in the D. Down here in the D. Mm-hmm. Um, he discussed how uh, technology and medicine usually rely on um, <clears throat> lots of general information and data that's collected over time from large populations, but isn't specifically very well tailored and there's to the individual and there's a half billion people on the planet with neurological issues. I'm one of them. Hey, I've been there or I should say that's where I live. (laughs) That's where I live. Yeah. Um, never leave. (laughs) And he said that the status quo is usually that, um, there are poor assessments and poor targeting of treatments. Um, there's no analytics. There's no crossover to clinical applications. Um, using molecules to solve problems, which translates to using medicines that you ingest or inject or whatever um, to solve your problems is not a particularly great or personalized way of addressing biological concerns. Um Instead of targeting people's neurotransmitters, which are involved in lots of neurological problems, he looks at neural networks instead. Yeah, like I'd say holistic, but not in the like hand wavy, like crystals and, you know, magic spells, but like holistic as in the system, you know, looking at the the, system as a whole. Yeah, the whole of the neural network system. Right. And not just treating things like your dopamine level, Mm -hmm. which is a singular a singular point of um, measurement. Right. Right. Singular point of treatment. So he talked about open loop treatments. Um, 
they're unimodal, meaning you have a problem, so you take a pill to treat that particular problem. One problem, one pill, one solution. Um, open loop treatments don't have a great feedback rate, meaning you take a pill and like you take it at the same time every day or several times a day. And then several days later, you're supposed to see results. For instance, that's an example. It's not obviously the way it happens all the time. Um, but in the intervening time, lots of other factors are impacting you besides taking that one pill for that one problem. And so measuring how effective it is can get really muddy. Um, and it's hard to say sometimes, you know, if you only talk to your relatives and you ask once a year how they're doing and they say, fine, you have the impression that they're probably doing fine because that was the last thing you heard from them until you talk to them again. If you check in with them 17 times a day, you're going to get a much more nuanced feel for how they are. You're going to see a lot more variation, et cetera, et cetera, right? Same thing with like testing for the results of treatments. The more close up attention you're paying and the more you can hone in on the specific treatment for the specific problem and get a feedback loop going between them, um, the better you are at treating things. So his um, he advocates for better assessments. He thinks that we can use technology to do better neurology and education. Um, we can think ahead. We can think of problems more effectively. Um, you can target and personalize and close the loop on problems that people are having and the treatments that are, seek to solve them. And um, you can use multiple modes of treatment at the same time and measure all of them more effectively than just trying one thing, seeing if it works, and then moving on to the next thing. Right. right. Um, he also talked a little bit about brain plasticity. Yeah, that was the... Um, I think that was really um, where a lot of his talk went in the sense of... Um, he talked about uh, using video games as a closed loop system where they're immediately getting the, the video game itself is reading feedback, um, signals from the, uh, the player and adapting itself to continue, um, advancing growth in a particular direction or plasticity and change in a particular direction. So, um, you know, obviously in the context of video games, it's sort of the video game increases its difficulty. Like if you're, you know, most people might think of like you're playing super Mario brothers. I mean, his example was, um, or the actual game he had, it seemed to be, he didn't talk too much about it, but it seemed to be, uh, I would say like a skill and reaction game, like eye hand coordination. Um, and so like to improve eye hand coordination, my, this is speculation. He did not go into details about what it was specifically that he was measuring and what they were trying to increase. But I, you know, you might infer that what they were talking about is increasing, um, the 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 player or the person who's participating in the experiment increasing their ability to perform that task um, more efficiently yeah. because of that feedback loop where the game is adjusting immediately to um, the user's feedback right so there's this yeah. like really closed feedback loop between the the player and the game and the player and the game back and forth and it's constantly adjusting to maximize their interaction with the game in a way that's supposedly, you know, increasing their plasticity in a particular direction that they're trying to get that individual to move <clears throat> neurologically speaking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was all of the things. Yeah. Or most was, of them anyway. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, um, you know, individuals that we talked to, um, various, you know, fun things to see. Um, so, uh, I think that's it. Like, I think we can kind of wrap that up. That was about hour and 15 minutes so i hope everyone enjoyed listening to that i think this one was a rather more dry and like kind of mundane discussion we weren't particularly uh 
punchy. Punchy. Yeah. But that'll, there'll be, there'll be more of those in the future. I have no doubt. Yes. Um, so, okay. I don't think we have anything else to talk about at this moment and I think we'll, um, wrap it up and thank you everyone for listening. Every, all of our audience. Bye.